Brew, west of Glasgow, is a small village nestling on the north shore of the Gare Loch, just where it joins the Clyde Estuary. I know it well. I used to live a mile or so along the shore at Helensborough, and I'd go there a couple of times a week to sail in the yacht club. Little did I know that one of the grand houses on the hill, Invergare Castle, originally called Roallan, used to be the summer home of a young woman who was at the centre of one of the most sensational cases of the 19th century. A woman who was accused of murdering her lover, and her trial, which took place in Edinburgh's High Court in 1857, took Victorian Scotland by storm. Madeline Smith, or Madeline Hamilton Smith, now or lately prisoner in the prison of Glasgow. You are indicted and accused at the instance of James Moncrief Esquire, Her Majesty's advocate for Her Majesty's interest. You have the fair maiden, you have the villain of the piece, uh, you have death by poisoning, uh, you have the shadow of the rope hanging over a criminal trial, you have the trial in Edinburgh, the capital city, attracting great public interest uh, and a verdict of not proven. What more do you want? It was the, the scandalous case of its era, I and mean, that has, I think, brought attention to it and maintained a focus of attention on it across the years. It, it wasn't just in Scotland, and it wasn't just in Britain, but it was pretty worldwide, you know. And of course, when it came to the trial, I mean, people flocked. Oh, criminal trials are theatre. They are the last free theatre, of course. It only costs you a bus ride to, to go and watch a criminal trial. And it would be theatrical because somebody is facing the death penalty. It caused an enormous scandal back in, in the Victorian era in Glasgow. Commissioners of Justiciary, you, the said Madeline Smith, or Madeline Hamilton Smith, ought to be punished with the pains of law to deter others from committing the like crimes in all time coming. Not guilty. If you want to hear an overview of the case, then go and listen to episode one if you haven't done so already. Here in episode two, we're going to turn to some of the evidence against Madeline. I'm Penny Stewart, and this is Inside Forensic Science, the case of Madeline Smith. Do you look back to it and think, you know, that's a, that's a courtroom I'd like to have sat in and witnessed because it must have been such a piece of theatre? No, it's a case I would like to have defended. I've no interest in being in the audience. I want to be on the stage. And centre stage in this second episode are the letters that Madeline and her lover exchanged. Over the course of their love affair between the spring of 1855 when they met until Emile's death in March 1857, Madeline wrote 250 or so letters to him. At the time of Emile's death, only Madeline's letters had survived. 60 of them were produced at the trial as evidence, read out by a court official, and they were cited as showing her motive for murder. Emile, I dote on you. I adore you with my heart and soul. I love you. I weep to think I have caused you grief. Hurried own, outpourings, breathless, Emile, disjointed, detailed so and passionate. They chart the course of the illicit affair. And because, apart from her declaration, which was read out for her, Madeline wasn't given a voice at the trial, you could be mistaken into thinking the letters speak on her behalf. Tuesday, two o'clock. I am afraid I may be too late to write to you this evening. So, as all are out, I shall do it now. 
my sweet one. I did not expect the pleasure of seeing you last evening, of being fondled by you, dear, dear Emil. Our cook was ill and went to bed at ten. That was the reason I could see you, but I trust ere long to have a long, long interview with you, sweet one of my soul, my love, my all, my own best beloved. I'm Donald Finlay, I am presently a King's Council. I have been in practice largely at the criminal bar for 47 and more years. For most of that time, I have spent my uh, life defending people charged with murder. Uh, I've always certainly defended more murder cases than any lawyer who has ever lived or is ever likely to live. Can we talk a bit about the letters? Because they were very central to, to mm -hmm. particularly what people learned about Madeline because mm -hmm. she didn't speak for herself. Oh, she wasn't allowed to speak for herself. Yes. Now, I wanted to check mm -hmm. in on that. So she, she wasn't given a voice. She's not allowed to speak because she would have to have taken the oath. And she wouldn't be allowed to take the oath in case she lied and damned her immortal soul. But what we have to learn of Madeline are this, this great number of, of letters. Yeah. How, I wanted to say how good are letters as a, a source of evidence, but perhaps I should say, what, what do we need to be cautious of in, in reading the letters as being Madeline? Well, I think you probably have to be as cautious as you would in the present day, because, because what, is, what has actually changed? Because Madeline and Emile exchanged pretty racy letters by any standards, and certainly by Victorian standards, whereas nowadays people exchange text messages saying all sorts of things that they wouldn't want to appear in the newspaper and so on. It doesn't necessarily mean to say that they, they, they mean it, or that it did happen in that way. A lot of the time, uh, Madeline was lying to him because she was engaged to Billy Minnick, she'd had enough of him. Uh, he didn't really have what she wanted, uh, and that was money, because money was quite important in those days, whereas Billy Minnick did. So we know that the letters were not entirely true. Uh, she is spinning him along. Was he also spinning her along? Well, yes, he was, because he was after her money. <laughs> I don't think it was Madeline's charms that he was entirely interested in because she was, a, she was a suitable prize. So all of that you have to build into the care and caution. My name is Niamh McDade. I'm a professor of forensic science at the University of Dundee and I am the director of the Levy Hume Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. Let's um, talk a moment about these letters because there's, there's loads of letters in this and they're a really important part of the, the whole case. What's the interest from a scientific point of view in these in these letters? So uh, that's a really good question because the the science is trying to establish two things predominantly. One is were the letters authored by Madeline? So that's that's the first question, and that comes down to penmanship. Back in the in, in those days in in the eighteen fifties, we only really had two writing implements. One was a, was what would have been a quill, 
and the other would have been um, probably the early types of fountain pens. There were no ballpoint pens, there were no gel pens, there were no other pens. So you were looking at two different types of writing instruments. So you could determine which of those would have been used and then you could subsequently say, well, which would Madeleine normally use? I think then looking at whether, and this may not be pertinent particularly with the letters that we're talking about, but the other area of document examination that is pertinent is whether or not there have been any additions or alterations made. For a handwriting expert, so for the forensic examiner, the content of the letter is not as important as the, as the authorship. So the content of the letter is something for the lawyers to argue and something for the jurors to contemplate because that might go towards motivation, it might go towards um, looking at the reasons why an individual might have done a particular thing, not the realm of the scientist. Our job is to say, is the person who's alleged to have written this the author of it? But of course, until you've got proof of authorship, the content is irrelevant. Once you know who wrote something, the content becomes all important. And the person who was alleged to have written the letters in the Madeleine Smith trial was, of course, Madeleine herself. We're going to come back to look in detail at just how letter writing analysis is carried out shortly, because it is a fascinating arm to forensic science. But let's stick with the content of the letters for the time being, because although it may not be of interest to science, it is of interest in the telling of Madeleine and Emil's story. I am Eleanor Gordon and I'm an affiliate professor at the University of Glasgow. I co-wrote a book with Gwyneth Nair on the Madeleine Smith case, Murder and Morality in Victorian Britain, the story of Madeleine Smith, which sets out to see what the case tells us about Victorian middle class of bourgeois society at the time. Well, she was 19 when she met him. I suppose we could say she was a teenager. I mean, a, a lot of the stuff that we know about Madeline comes from the letters that she wrote to him and, and various other sources as well, uh, which means that the, we know a lot more about Madeline after she came back from boarding school in London. And when she came back, she was kind of expected to sort of marry someone respectable, someone appropriate to class and settle down to. Uh, a bourgeois life. Instead, Madeleine caught the eye of Pierre-Emile Langelier, a Jersey-born clerk significantly below her class and, according to Donald Finley KC, a man on the make. We know he was a man who wanted the good things in life, or at least the better things in life than he had. Um, and we also know that if it was a choice between earning it and acquiring it, Emil preferred to acquire it. And one of the easier ways to acquire it was to marry it. Now, what's new, you may say, in my response would be nothing. Um, so I think he was somebody driven by money. He had ideas or desires way beyond what he could ever uh, achieve. Uh, and one day, while strolling in Glasgow, he lit by pure chance upon two above averagely presentable young ladies, not obviously overburdened with wealth, but just a level that he might aspire to. And one of them was Betsy and the other was Madeline. And away we went. The train journey, the roller coaster began. 
and the roller coaster, in large part, was carried out by letter writing, both in Glasgow and in Rue at Rowallan, the house Madeline's father designed. Rowallan was where Madeline was staying when she sent the first of many, many letters to Emile. My dear Emile, I do not feel as if I were writing to you for the first time. Though our intercourse has been very short, yet we have become as familiar friends. May we long continue so. And ere long may you be a friend of Papa's in my most earnest desire. We feel it rather dull here after the excitement of town's life. But then we have much more time to devote to study and improvement. Oh, I often wish you were near us. We could take such charming walks. One enjoys walking with a pleasant companion and... Where could we find one equal to yourself? I am trying to break myself off of all my very bad habits. It is you I have to thank for this, which I do sincerely from my heart. There was at least three posts a day. I mean, it was the main way of communicating with each other. And letter writing was very, was very common, and particularly amongst the, the middle classes and the upper classes. I wish it had been more common amongst the working classes. We might find out a bit more about their lives, you know. And Madeleine, uh, I don't know whether it came from, from um, sort of economic prudence or, or what, but she used to write, you know, she didn't just write on the paper like that, she'd turn it sideways and she'd write sideways on both sides and then turn it. It was absolutely jam-packed, you know, with words. In many respects, the letters are a total gift. Their affair develops quickly and because of the clandestine nature of their relationship, much of it is documented through their correspondence. It's hard not to read between the lines of Madeline's letters, to seek out Madeline as a person. She sounds so excited by the secret and subversive nature of what she's doing. She's a teenager, busy falling in love with the wrong person. As the mother of a teen girl myself, I can imagine just how exciting that would have been. In one of her early letters, she says, Rest assured, I will not mention to anyone that you have written me. I know from experience that the world is not lenient in its observations, but I don't care for the world's remarks so long as my own heart tells me I'm doing nothing wrong. You've studied the, the letters in, in great detail. What do they offer up in terms of letting us into that world and, and into Madeline as a, as a person? Well, I guess that's, that is two different things. And from our point of view, it's sort of this, as historians, we were more interested in what it was telling us about that world uh, and her life. And what it, what it did show was um, how, how full her social life was. I mean, there was weeks when uh, she went out perhaps every night of the week. There was balls, there was opera, there was dinners. Madeline had uh, much more freedom than we had been led to, to believe. As historians, we were a bit less interested initially in Madeline's character. Once you read her letters, you couldn't um, fail to be absolutely absorbed by her. She was a real, she was a real mince, you know, she was quite an interesting character. I mean, she, he, he was a pain in the neck. 
and he really was. He was controlling, he was jealous, he was always telling her what she should and shouldn't do, what she should wear, what she shouldn't wear. And she went out of her way to wind him up. And she would say, you tell me not to flirt, and I have tried my hardest not to flirt. And we've got some four nice young gentlemen here from England, but I'll do my best not to flirt. You know, so you can see that she's really enjoying the fact that he's mad about her and the fact that he's jealous doesn't frighten her one iota. She just likes to wind him up. It's worth noting that for the most part, we only have one side of the conversation, Madeline's. But even then, what you get is rich and detailed. Emile's letters were disposed of, and although there was a pocketbook found among his possessions, in the end, after a lengthy discussion in court, it was declared to be inadmissible as evidence, because there was a question mark over exactly when and why it was written. It does make for interesting reading, though, and you'll find it through the links on the episode page. Early in the correspondence, Madeline does try and break off the letter writing, but Emile clearly persuades her to keep going, and by the summer of 1855, she's fallen for him. Soon after that, they discuss getting married. The prosecution wanted to use Madeleine's letters as evidence of a possible motive for murdering Emile. We'll reveal just what that motive may have been in the next episode, but for the purposes of this episode, we're interested in letters as scientific evidence. Jonathan Morris is a forensic scientist with the Scottish Police Authority Forensic Services based at Gartkosh, just outside Glasgow. He's got 32 years' experience as a forensic handwriting examiner. When we're dealing with, with handwritten text, or, or any form of text, but particularly handwritten text, there are three avenues that, that can be investigated. There is the avenue of forensic handwriting examination where we are determining authorship based on the features that we see within the writing. There is a second area of forensic science called forensic linguistics. And these are individuals that have a, a different scientific background who will analyse the content of letters and determine whether or not there are similarities between the content to determine if they have been written by the same person or give some indication that these have been written by the same person. There is another avenue of uh, examination, which is that of graphology. And graphology uh, is, can be considered to be the determination of elements of personality based on handwriting features. Uh, this isn't the scientific method or scientific process as we do for forensic handwriting examination. And it is an area in which many forensic handwriting experts are not particularly confident in the results that are given. However, forensic graphology or graphology is used by businesses to determine the suitability of candidates for, for positions or posts within jobs. It's not an area that I consider very highly, and it's one that I consider can be uh, detrimental to a forensic handwriting examination. And how are you actually carrying out that analysis? Uh, the process of comparing handwriting now is very much the same as the process of handwriting comparisons in the late 1870s. We sit and we observe the writing through a microscope. We sit and we observe the features that we can see. We draw them out, we annotate photocopies, we mark up illustrations to demonstrate the features that we are looking at. Robots don't do this work. Um, AI hasn't yet been involved uh, significantly in forensic handwriting examination, and it is very much down to the training of an individual and the length of time the individual has been working within the area to determine 
the significance of features. It is labour-intensive, potentially one of the most labour-intensive processes within a forensic laboratory. But as has been indicated, the uh, significance of those findings can be absolutely conclusive and significant in an ongoing court investigation. That feels quite unusual for a piece of, of evidence. Uh, it is. We work on the principle that an individual has their own style of handwriting. Um, we are taught to write at school, uh, albeit teaching of handwriting in school is probably less now than it was. But we're all taught to write in school and we're all taught to write in a certain way. As we get older, we develop our own personal characteristics that we have in our writing, features that are unique to us as an individual. Uh, one of the principal underlying factors for a forensic handwriting comparison is that the handwriting of no two individuals is exactly the same. Given a large enough quantity of handwriting, we will be able to find features of similarity if they're written by the same person or difference if they're written by different people that will allow us to form a conclusive opinion. If we have less handwriting, smaller quantities of handwriting, our conclusion may be less and we may talk about moderate support that they are written by the same person or even weak support that they are written by the same person. But this is weak support compared to the alternative, which is that they're written by different people. So how do we apply all of this to the Madeleine Smith case? For any writing to be admissible as evidence, authorship needed to be established, both for Emile in relation to the pocketbook and in respect of Madeleine and any productions pertaining to her. As a result, back in 1857, instead of using expertise like Jonathan's, witnesses were called. William Stevenson, I'm a warehouseman with Huggins and Co, Bothwell Street. The late Mr Longellier was in our warehouse under me. I know Longellier had a memorandum book. I saw it on the Monday, but where I got it, I cannot say. I identify it. I know the handwriting to be his. I was shown a number of letters by the Procurator Fiscal. They were in Miss Smith's handwriting. I recognised some of the envelopes as being bought at my shop. They were stamped with the initials M-H-S. They were stamped for her by me. Mr Moncrief, one of the counsel for the prisoner, showed me a number of letters and envelopes and I satisfied myself they were in Miss Smith's handwriting, excepting some envelopes. I have initialed a sheet of paper containing the numbers of these letters. Excepting some envelopes, all the documents are in Miss Smith's handwriting. We already know from the transcript that at that time the handwriting of Madeline Smith was identified by friends and associates as being her handwriting. Uh, this isn't particularly a solid and sound basis on which to form a forensic opinion. We would be asking uh, the investigators to supply us with a sample or a known sample of the handwriting of Madeleine Smith. Uh, this would either be done by request, where she is sat down and a sample of handwriting is given by her for the comparison purposes, or alternatively, there is course of business writing, writing that she has made during the routine parts of her daily life, which we can then take to be her handwriting, provided that this is proved by the court. Uh, in this case, where the handwriting of Emile has been identified only by associates in a notebook, we would be asking for handwriting of, from other sources of a mill to be able to prove that he actually made those entries in the notebook. 
establishing at that point that what has been given to us as known writing of Madeleine Smith is indeed by her, and given the known writing that is supposedly by Emile is actually written by him. That is a basis from which we would start. So, Jonathan, we've got in front of us a blown-up sample of, of Madeleine's writing. If that was placed in front of you, just talk me through the, the, the things that are immediately going through your head or point out what you'd be looking for in an analysis of, of this particular bit in front of us. When we come to do our examination, we will look at a piece of writing and we will determine what we would expect to find in another piece of writing if they were written by the same person. So we set up our expectations. Uh, for example, in this bit of writing, the writing looks reasonably fluent. There appear to be variations in pen pressure, albeit I'm looking at a copy rather than an original. We'll stop you right there. How do you know there's variations in pen pressure? <laughs> uh, the, the thickening and the thinnings of lines. So in the top line here, um, we, we have what would appear to be the word rather. The letter A appears to have a thickening of the ink line at the top of the A, and then a thinning as you go down the left-hand arc of the A, and then it seems to thicken at the bottom of the A as it turns the corner. So these points of thickening and thinning of an ink line can be an indication of the level of pen pressure that's involved in the piece of writing. The connection between the A and the T, the connection point on that line is thinner and lighter than the heavier downward stroke of the stem of the T, and again, the stem of the T going into the H, the line is thinner again. So this is an indication of the thick thickening and thinning of the pen line. Now, with a modern ballpoint pen, that thickening and thinning would definitely be an indication of uh, changes in the pressure of the writing implement. Emile, I see your sweet smile. I hear you say you will come and see your Mimi. Clasp her to your bosom and kiss her. Call her your own pet, your wife. Emile will not refuse me. Given that we are dealing with a fountain pen back in the 1850s, this could be a mark of the direction of the pen nib rather than necessarily a pen pressure, but this would be something that if we had the original writing we could look at and we could determine if it is a pressure point or a variation in the writing style. But throughout this writing, there are thickening and thinnings of the ink line, which would indicate that there is variation in pressure. We also have connective strokes between some of the characters. So in the fourth line, we have uh, what looks like the word leave. Um, we have a connection between the L and the E. The pen has been lifted between the E and the A, but there is then a connection between the A, the V, and the E. So connectivity between characters is another indication of the relative smoothness or fluency of a piece of writing. The final feature we look at is tapered ends, the, the fine features at the beginning of a character or at an end of a character where the pen starts to come on in a rapid movement, in a, in a point, it then thickens, and then you, when you get to the end of a piece of writing, the pen comes away from the page. Now, with fountain pens, they tend to be, at the end of a, a word, an ink blob or a thickening of the ink line because that's the nature of the liquid ink. But in this writing, we do see thinning of the uh, line at the commencement characters. Again, another indication that this writing appears to be reasonably fluent and natural. So where have we got to? Well, while the court may have been satisfied as to the authorship of the productions relating to Emile and Madeleine, there was a problem 
and it was a significant one. When Madeline's letters were found among Emile's possessions, they were not in any kind of chronological order, and many of them were undated, or dated solely by the day of the week. If it had been presented to the jury that there is a chronological sequence of the letters that fits in much more in keeping with a timeline of emotions being built up and um, the circumstances changing, with this notion that at the time um, Emil may have gone to Bridge of Allen, he may have stayed in Glasgow, we don't truly know because we don't know the chronolo chronological order of the, the letters. It's tending to point more towards notions of guilt if that were to be proved. We can't determine what the court will have done at the time and therefore that's out of our control. But you tend to think that if these things were proved in that particular direction, she may have got away with, with murder. Is there anything that, that forensic science can bring to unravelling that side of it? Uh, there is. We have another process which is called uh, the examination for indented impressions. When you write on one piece of paper, you leave impressions of what you write on the page below. So for if, if, for example, I wrote a shopping list on the top of a notepad in my house, and on the next page I wrote a letter to the bank, there would be impressions on the letter to the bank of the handwriting of the shopping list on the page above. This is an indication that that letter was written after the shopping list. Now, if above that I had written a letter which was dated and which could be shown to be dated, you have then got a chronological sequence in which those documents had been written through these indented impressions. Given that we were dealing with a, uh, a fountain pen type scenario, the pressure used in these situations isn't as great as that as a ballpoint, but it may well be features that we could look at to determine the chronologi chronological sequence of the handwriting. So, contemporary forensic analysis of the various sources of handwriting in the Madeleine Smith case could have confirmed authorship, but potentially also shed light on the chronological sequence of the letters. And, as we're going to hear in later episodes, that lack of proof of when exactly some of the letters were written and sent, and consequently when Madeleine and Emile might have last met, will prove crucial to how the case unfolds. There isn't scope here to go through all the letters in detail, but we have put a link in the episode notes so you can have a look at the case files for yourself. There were also samples of Madeline and Emile's writing. The letters make for a fascinating deep dive into Madeline and Emile's world, and it's almost impossible not to be seduced by their content. But a word of caution before you leap to any conclusions about Madeline's guilt or innocence. Pause for a second and think about your own correspondence. Think about how you present yourself to the world on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or even through your WhatsApp messages. How accurate is any dialogue you have in revealing who you are? To what extent do you curate an image for yourself? Professor Eleanor Gordon again. That, that idea of kind of self-curation, if, if you like, self-editing what, what comes across. I mean, even though they are intimate and they're personal, they're private letters, um, you think there's a... There's a measure of that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's not that she thought that they would be read. I mean, she never in a million years thought that they were going to be read. Never mind being read out in a court. 
so it wasn't for that reason. It was just, she was a young, very young, in a way, a mature woman who was confecting uh, a, a persona that she thought she she should. I mean, that a person, a young woman in love, you know, should be should be doing. But having said that, it's not all artifice. She was very young, and you know, she was influenced um, by all all sorts of things. I mean, the cultural products of the time, the books. And you can tell she's acting a part some of the time. Like, you know, the, the heroine who is misunderstood, uh, who is uh, destined never to be happy in life. You know, the, you see these different persona appearing in her letters. So yes, it's very difficult to say what she is really like because she is adopting these different personalities or personas, you know, from mainly books that you know she would be that she would be reading. And you can see that, you know, you can see that coming through quite strongly. I have got my chambers journal for this month, and the article you mention is not in the April number, so it shall be in the May volume. I have been reading Blackwood for this month. B is a favourite publication of mine. In fact, I think it is the best conducted monthly publication. I have only got the length of Henry VIII and Hume, and I agree with you. It would not make a careless person become good. But it is a well-written history. Have you read Macaulay's third and fourth volumes? I like the fourth very much, but I don't mind the third much. I am rather fond of comparing different authors on the same subject, so I am at present comparing Alison, Hume and Macaulay. We are all the product of the culture we inhabit, and of course for us, that's now a digital culture. I'm not sure I can actually remember the last time I wrote a letter, so how likely is it that the skills of the forensic handwriting expert will become redundant in the digital world? When I started 32 years ago, I was told that we would be a paperless office in the near future. Here I am 32 years later, and I'm still comparing handwriting on a daily basis. We get cases which are hate mail, threat mail. We get cases which are fraud. We get will cases where the signature is in dispute. We also get uh, high-level, high-value uh, fraud investigations with partner companies investigating organised crime groups in terms of their forensic handwriting um, aspects. So, with handwriting, you're looking to say whether something was written by a particular person. To what extent are we able to do something, anything at all, with the digital side of things to determine authorship? Uh, in terms of text analysis, um, there is a, a school of thought that says you can look at text that's been sent between people, uh, individuals have specific ways of writing um, text messages, maybe shorthand or whatever. Uh, these can, I suspect, be used by individuals to determine some level of authorship of, of the text. In terms of forensic use of digital, um, as we move forward, we are seeing more in the way of digitally captured handwriting, uh, specifically signatures. Uh, banks, uh, car hire companies, legal firms are capturing uh, signatures on digital pads 
uh, and using software are able to implement or implant that signature inside documents. Those documents then become legal and the digital signature becomes part of that legal document. Uh, these digital signatures have advanced our understanding of handwriting significantly because the tablets are able to capture biometric data. The biometric data that can be captured is the physical position of the stylus of that writing implement on the surface of the tablet. It can then tell you the time span between movement positions on the tablet. So at point one, you may be uh, at a certain point on the tablet. Five milliseconds later, the stylus will have moved to a different point. So you can analyze the length of time it's taken to move to that point and the distance it's moved. So you can then start to get the velocity of the writing. This isn't something you can get from a static pen and paper trace. This is something you can pick up from one of these biometric tablets. So you're able to pick up time, you're able to calculate velocity because of the, the movement of the stylus. They also have the capability of capturing pressure or force. And that's the force of the tip of the stylus on the tablet. Now, I mentioned earlier about pen and paper writing. We look to determine the pen pressure by the variations in the thickening and the thinning of the incline. With the biometric data, you've got an empirical figure that will tell you the force at that particular time, and you will see variations in the force components over time. These can be illustrated in the form of a graph, and you can see the variation in pen pressure, the variation in force, uh, the variation in velocity over the length of that signature from the basis of these graphs. And that's given us a much greater understanding about the variability of someone's handwriting. What has been the biggest or most significant change in the field since, you know, over the past 160 years, since Madeline Smith's time? The most significant would probably be the changes in the taught writing styles. The writing styles of the 1850s were very different from the taught writing styles of the early 1900s, very different from the taught writing styles of the 1940s and 50s, when I was taught to write in the 1970s, we looked at a different writing style. And nowadays, education isn't so much talking about copybook styles of handwriting. We're talking about people's abilities to write. Part of this has come about by the introduction of electronics and the media age, where people are texting or emailing and they're writing less. Part of it's become um, because we don't teach handwriting in schools in anything like the same way that we did. Therefore, people probably have a greater variation in their writing than they do in the past. Madeline and her kin and uh, her age group at school will have all been taught to write the same way and they won't have developed a particularly distinctive personal style. That's not always the case, but the majority of times it is the case. Modern writing is very distinctive. Um, people do have much greater variation in their writing. Variation that can cause issues, because if you have a wider variability in your handwriting, the possibility of chance resemblance with someone else, particularly when you're dealing with a small amount of writing, is a greater possibility. But it is something that we need to consider. That would be the greatest change. Very close to that would be the change in the writing implements that are being used. The move away from um, quill pens and fountain pens uh, into fibre tip, uh, gel pens and particularly ballpoint pens 
Ballpoint pens give us a lot of features in handwriting that you would not have observed uh, in the ancient fountain pen style of writing. And this has made life easier for us because there are features within that that give us much more distinctive characteristics in the handwriting. Fascinating stuff. I don't think I'll pick up a pen in quite the same way ever again. In the next episode of Inside Forensic Science, the case of Madeleine Smith, we'll continue to unravel the romance between Madeleine and Emile and discover why the prosecution believe Madeleine's letters hold the key to Emile's murder. How and why might Madeleine have shifted from love-struck teen to potential murderess? After all, she's not the first young woman to have a crush crushed. What do the letters contain that makes Madeline so keen to get them back. Altogether, I think, owing to coolness and indifference, nothing else, that we had better for the future consider ourselves as strangers. I trust to your honour as a gentleman that you will not reveal anything that may have passed between us. I shall feel obliged by your bringing me my letters and likeness on Thursday evening at seven. On Friday night, I shall send you all your letters. In episode two of Inside Forensic Science, the case of Madeline Smith, the actors were Joe Riley, Kira Lucchese, Dave Bryce, Andrew Thompson, Ian Boffey, and Lindsay Moyes. The experts were Professor Neve McDade, Donald Findlay KC, Jonathan Morris, and Professor Eleanor Gordon. The series story consultants are Heather Duran and Clara Morris. And Inside Forensic Science is written and presented by me, Penny Stewart. It's produced by Adventurous Audio Limited for the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. And the series is funded by the Leverhulme Trust. <laughs>